2 Samuel chapter 11 is our address. Let's say word. Word. We are in the Word. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, and as you turn to that passage, uh, we are continuing our journey down the hall, the great hall of faith. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, I will begin with a question. Have you ever done a bad thing? Uh-huh. And when I say bad thing, I mean a really bad thing. A thing so bad, in fact, that you would just prefer to bury it under 16 tons of concrete, never to see the light of day ever. And maybe even it stirs within a sense of fear of being exposed and found out. Well, this morning as we continue our journey down the Great Hall, we turn from one of the great portraits of faith, as we saw two weeks ago, that of David standing toe-to-toe with Goliath. That is a, a great high watermark of the man's life. But as we'll come to discover, as we walk down the hall of faith, there are other portraits that hang of great failing. And we have to ask the question, how does our faith manifest itself in our life, even in our failing? And we're going to see that over the next couple of messages. Because this morning, we move from the portrait of David and Goliath to now a portrait from the exact same man's life. But this particular portrait is far more dark and drips with the strokes of sin. It's going to leave us asking the question, how could this have happened? How could this man... That is, the scriptures record is a man after God's own heart. How could he have done such a sinister thing? I will make the statement right up front that we all have the capacity within us to do some really dark and sinister things. Well, by the time we catch up with David, he is now king. God has abundantly blessed him and exalted him. And, and honestly, he begins to start living the Miller high life. He's about to ride the gravy train on into a series of apparent, and it will appear to be small decisions. But these small decisions are going to turn into a major moral failing. And and I just want to say, in life, we can make some really small decisions that seem sort of insignificant, but can in the end lead to a major failing. First, we begin with David's decision. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. One, in the spring of the year, when the flowers were blooming, the birds are chirping, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It all begins with what appears to be a small and even innocent decision that, in, that instead of going to war, as kings were supposed to do, David chose instead to hang back. The text is hinting at us that instead of doing what he was supposed to do, David chose to do what he wanted to do. These are those moments where in our guts, We know we should be doing something. We feel it at the core of our being. We know we should be doing something, but then we just sort of decide to do something else. 
Maybe David was telling himself that he needed a little R&R, a little me time. He had deserved it, right? Like he had just come off a major, major military victory the season prior, the text tells us. Well, we need to be very careful. Because, yes, we need rest, but there is a point in our lives where we can actually start to entertain our flesh. And it is sinister. And it is within us all. And the reality is, you give your flesh a minute, it's going to take a day. You give the flesh a day, it'll take a week. And ultimately will lead to some really dark and even deadly waters. Well, over the next few verses, what we're going to see is very rapidly three distinct actions. We're going to see, David is going to see, and he's going to look. He will then desire and inquire, and then David is going to take. It's the age-old pattern. It is as ancient as the garden. We see this pattern on display in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, where we read, So when the woman saw, when she looked and really saw, this is after a a very short conversation between she and the serpent that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. David is going to see and look and he's going to see something beautiful and that the tree was to be desired. David will desire and inquire. She took of its fruit and ate. We will see David follow the same age-old pattern. He will see desire and choir he will take and he will eat and just as we read in the narrative of genesis chapter 3 as we will see in the narrative of second samuel chapter 11 the consequence is the same death first david looked second samuel chapter 11 verse 2 it happened you know it Again, that thing you'd like to bury, we'd like to bury under 16 tons of concrete, never to be unearthed or to ever see the light of day. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. It was the spring. The seasons had changed. The weather was fine outside. The flowers were blooming. He's feeling a little restless. And so he goes for the, a stroll on the roof of his palace, and from his private perch, he sees, he looks at a woman bathing. And he didn't just look, he watched. And, and at this moment, this godly king, David, is reduced to essentially a peeping tom. And his flesh takes over. We see next, David then desired and inquired. Verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? His servants relay to David that the woman is off limits. David, you could have the pick of your kingdom, but she is not available. She is, in fact, one of his soldiers' wives. Well, as we will see, these little decisions that David has been making, they pick up speed. He should have stopped right here. But at this moment, he is already well underway. 
And here's the reality. What we will witness here and what we have seen here, it's like an elevator. I'm going to call this the elevator of sin. And how this works is, is we make this little decision. Anytime we, we decide to step into the elevator of sin, we get in, but it only goes one direction. It only goes down. It never goes up. And floor after floor after floor. We can get off at any floor, but guess what the end is? Where does the basement reach? Death. Verse 4, David took the boundaries of fidelity in marriage and honoring one's own soldier, it's all out the window. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. We get a brief note of her purity, then she returned to her house. It happens that quick. I mean, as we read it in the text, it is the quintessential one-night stand. And I, I need to note here that there is no hint that Bathsheba was in any way, shape, or form the instigator at all. Some have attempted to shade this narrative in this scene as if Bathsheba had intentionally been bathing to catch the eye of the king. Even if that were sort of true. This is a complete abuse of power and position. David should have walked in his integrity. That we would read of in Job chapter 31 verse 1, that ancient Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully on a woman. Family, anytime we have a one-night stand with sin, it rarely, if ever, ends with that night. David then gets that text message, three little pregnant words, pun intended. Verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now what would normally have been wonderful news, like beautiful news, joyous news, a pregnancy, is now reduced to something that has to be covered up. And, and David right now is in a real jam, because it's not going to be long before Bathsheba's pregnancy is going to be known. And in this culture of what we're reading, in that day and time, adultery was punishable by death. Which is kind of interesting. Like, I wonder what that would do with our contemporary adultery rates if that law was on the books. And just like our ancient grandparents, who set out to cover their sin behind fig leaves, David attempts to cover his sin with his faithful soldier. The cover-up begins in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and, and how the people were doing and how the war was going. <laughs> Here David makes duplicitous small talk. His only reason for bringing Uriah home was to orchestrate an intimate reunion and hopes of covering up the pregnancy. Again, this reads just like an elevator ride. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. It is really rough reading. Uriah has no idea what is happening. And as we see this unfold, we come to discover that Uriah proves to be more righteous than his king. Verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash 
your feet. You can catch the euphemism. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. And, oh, look how nice, right? David sends along a care package, a bottle of wine, some roses, some chocolate-dipped strawberries. But Uriah doesn't play his role. You know, through this whole entire narrative, we see David treating people in his life like pawns for his own use. They are things. David took Bathsheba like a piece of property. David now uses his soldier as a piece of covering up his sin. But Uriah doesn't play his part. And instead of going home, he chooses to spend the night among David's other servants. Verse 9, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants and did not go down to his house. This is not because Uriah did not love his wife. He did love his wife. But this is because the man was walking in the integrity of his heart as a soldier and as a servant of the king. And what's crazy here is David doesn't get it. He doesn't understand because he is so far into his sin, he could not imagine Uriah passing up the opportunity. We see this in verse 10 through 11. When they told David that Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Haven't you come from a far journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, This is why. The ark of the Lord and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house? To eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What an indictment against David. Here, Uriah abstains from what he literally had the rightful ability to do. He could have rightfully done and unknowingly refuses to cover up what David never should have done. David's next attempt to weaken the steady resolve of Uriah, uh, well, now with booze. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he, he ate in his presence and drank so that he... That is, David made him drunk. David throws a party for Uriah. Tray after tray of delicious food. Toast after toast. All the while, a sinister plan. Uriah must have been thinking, Wow, this king really loves me. I mean, he's really whining and dining me. But only for one reason. And hopes that by intoxication, Uriah's heart would be weakened and his resolve. But we read in the text that in the evening, he went out and lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. I love what Warren Wiersbe says about this, that Uriah drunk proves to be a better man than David sober. I'm going to make a very important point. Sometimes we are going to suffer 
specifically because a person or people in our sphere of influence or in our world are spiritually sick. Spiritually sick people. They do spiritually sick things. Uriah here clinging to his faithfulness unknowingly signs his own death sentence. David first tries gifts and then wine and now murder. Verse 14, David decrees death. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Did you read that? He wrote a letter and sent it by the hand of Uriah. I can't think of a more spiritually sick pe uh, picture. Unlike Uriah, we are able to read the contents of this particular letter, verse 15. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him. Send him right to the front, right to the front of the battle, and then pull everyone away from him and let him stand alone so that he may die. This is the war David should have been fighting. He is now using it to kill one of his finest soldiers. A man of integrity and honor, all because of the spiritual sickness of David's own heart. We read in the narrative that his commander carries out David's plans and David's order, and, and Uriah is killed in battle. A messenger is quickly sent to David to relay the news. Uriah was killed by the enemy's arrow. But David was the true archer. Again, Uriah was killed by the enemy's arrow, but David was the true archer. David, lev David leveraged his God-given position and authority to unjustly kill. Again, David leveraged his God-given position and authority to unjustly kill his faithful servant. David's response reveals his callous and sin-sick heart. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city. Overthrow it and encourage him. David sends encouragement to, to Joab for a job well done. Please note, a sin-sick heart has no conscience. A sin-sick heart has no conscience. David should have been doubled over in agonizing sobs of repentance, but he just shrugs it off. Have you ever had something like that in your life? where a person has done something so vile or so wicked or so spiritually sick and they just sort of shrug it off? Have you ever been that person to do it? It's because of sickness, spiritual sickness. And when we're in our spiritual sickness, our hearts and our mind, we have no conscience. Bathsheba soon receives word that her husband is now dead. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented, that is, she mourned, and she wept. She knew. 
with her ceremonial days of mourning were over, David, without delay, closes out the chapter with one final grotesque act. Verse 27. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That final phrase seems to have very little bite, right? I've read that often. I've been like, it just displeased him. But a better rendering and a more accurate reading of that final statement is what David had done was evil. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. There is real evil in this world. And there was real evil that can be carried out by people. Even people who are in places of trusted authority. David was the king. There was no higher authority in the land other than God. And David used that authority to do some really ungodly things, didn't he? Well, as time passed, as time does, the child is born. And I think David at this point would just assume, move on. And bury all of this under 16 tons of concrete, never to see the light of day. But then God takes out a God-sized shovel and starts digging. As we will see, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. That is where we will pick up next week. Uh, some applications for us this morning. This age-old pattern. Look, inquire, and take. You know, as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, you may look at that and be like, that's not my issue. But the same pattern remains. The pattern that we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and all the way through the scriptures and all the way through our lives. It's as ancient as the garden to see something, to desire it, and to take it, and to eat it. Its end is always death. It is the elevator of sin. The doors open Bing. And all it starts with is the simple decision to step into it. And I'm really glad I did not just step off the end of the stage. Because <laughs> that would have been a quick drop. And the door shut. And the only direction it goes is down. And here's what's crazy. Sometimes falling feels like flying. It can be thrilling. But it only goes down floor after floor after floor. You, we can get off at any floor. And in fact, what should have happened is David should have stepped off that elevator the moment he was ready to take. In any moment prior to that, he should have had godly accountability and advisors and clear boundaries in his life that he would never cross. But once he crossed that line, that elevator just continued to go down. 
And it all started with what seemed like a very insignificant decision. And again, this may not be stuff that you struggle with. You may look at that, that's not my issue. But here's the reality. We are all tempted by a myriad of things. And so one of these verses that I want to encourage you to put into your memory bank and to think about and to draw back to your mind is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that tells us that no temptation has overtaken us that is not common There's, we're not that unique. And I'll tell you right now, Satan's game plan, he doesn't, it doesn't change. And by the way, it doesn't have to. The same stuff has been taking us out all the way through history since the fall. But we are told that God is faithful and he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that we may be able to endure it. That in Christ, sin and death has been crucified on the cross. That we are full of the Holy Spirit and that when we walk in the Holy Spirit, we can endure temptation. I want to encourage us to have accountability. Set in place clear boundaries. And if those doors open in front of us and open in front of you, Turn around and run like hell is literally on your heels. Because it is. Secondly, a sin-sick heart has no conscience. Things that should have brought incredible conviction to the heart of this godly king were wholeheartedly dismissed. And it makes sense, actually. Because when the heart is sick— Things that should bring incredible conviction and repentance are treated as trivial matters. I have, I have watched both men and women completely forsake families and in the Lord go out and start a brand new one. I have watched people in the grip of addiction do some of the most vile and gross things, all the while blaming everyone else for the destruction that they themselves have caused. We see it every day. Spiritually sick people doing spiritually sick things. And we're like, whoa, why isn't there conviction? Why isn't there some recognition of the evil? It's because when the heart is sick, there's no conscience. And so I just want to stress that when things that used to bring incredible conviction, that line between right and wrong, when that starts to get blurry, that is the moment where we need to stop and go, whoa, I think the sickness has started. And in that moment, we need to turn back to God and be like, God, I think my heart is getting sick and get into the scriptures, and get into real accountability in other Christians' lives, men, with women, uh, men and women with women, and sharing the sin and the struggles. Praying for one another. And then finally, how could this have happened? We just witnessed in the scriptures the unjust taking of a woman and the unjust killing of a man by a king. 
who was entrusted to protect his people. This literally is a picture that could be ripped out of our current headlines. I do not claim to experientially understand all of the historic details and everything that is happening right now as it relates in our culture to the death of George Floyd. But I do recognize it's deeper and greater than that. We watched and we witnessed the unjust killing of a man by a person entrusted to protect. It is injustice. It is spiritual sickness. It is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we need to recognize that. And we need to recognize that right now, that in our country and in our culture, in our communities, and even in our church, people right now are hemorrhaging emotionally. People do not need our propaganda on Facebook. People do not need the political garbage, both left and right. It stinks. You see, when we gave our lives to Christ, we conceded some things. And we have to appeal to a higher authority, and that is the gospel. I will tell you right now that neither Republican nor Democrat will usher in the kingdom of God. That the church has been placed here in such a time to be ambassadors of the gospel and of the testimony of reconciliation that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, not only between Jew and Gentile, but between all people that under the cross we are all under one blood. That makes us one people. Our last political cycle just about fractured our church down the middle. Y'all, I would love to tell you that things are going to get better in our culture. But the scriptures tell us that culture does one thing. It decays. We have to stop blaming and pointing and tearing down and building up walls because in Christ the wall is torn down. People do not need our twisted tweets. They don't need our judgmental arguments. What people need right now is like lavish and copious amounts of Christ-centered love. That where there is hurting, we bring healing. Where there is weeping, we bring tears. Where there is anger, we seek to understand. And we share the life-saving message of Jesus Christ in tangible acts of love and service because love, family, is sacrificial. Greater love is none than this. A person lay his life down for his friend. I think our definition of friend needs to get a lot bigger. A heck of a lot bigger. Because family, the, the culture is looking at the church. 
and the scriptures tell us Jesus in his final words to his disciples before he went to the cross and ascended into heaven he told us this commandment I give to you that you love one another that the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples by our love for one another may that love be evident not just in our words but in the way that we live our life for God so loved the what the who the world that's a pretty all-encompassing statement wouldn't you agree who are we supposed to love aha uh -huh. yes the world is a mess and we as Christ ambassadors are tasked with the beautiful responsibility and honor of carrying the message of reconciliation to the cross to the world. So here's our assignment this week. Let us find tangible opportunities to not just say you were loved, but let us find tangible opportunities to show you were loved. I believe that if we pray that, God, show me who and how I can love this week, God will show us. And we will have that privilege of truly being light and salt in a dark, fractured, flavorless world that is decaying. Let us be the light and let us be the salt. Amen? Pretty heavy for our first time back, right? Well, next week we will see what do we do in our failures? How is faith manifested? And we will turn to the lovely psalm of Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we deeply, deeply appreciate. We are deeply thankful and indebted you, our Savior. Lord, it would be so easy this morning to walk out just feeling the accusations of our failings and our sins and our self-condemnation. But that in you, Jesus, you took our sin to the cross and that when we confess it you are faithful and just to forgive we rejoice today in our collective salvation our collective confession that we are a people of you Jesus we are one people under one cross under one Lord under you our Father in heaven you are above all and through all and in all and above all to be glorified. So may we glorify you this week. May the ministry of reconciliation permeate our homes and our church, our community and our country. And may the gospel be proclaimed in word and in action. For you so love the world. Now please allow us to go out and do the same. We praise you and we worship you. And in your precious name we pray.